Good morning, Church of the Red Door. How are you this morning? 47 degrees. We were on the way. My daughter Tess said, Dad, it's so cold here. I said, we got people all over the country that are in their bathing suits this morning, and you're thinking it's cold at 47. Um, couple little quick things, and then we'll pray and get rolling this morning. I want you to know that, uh, again, February 9th, that's a Sunday evening, we're going to have our, um, our push to try to secure this land, and uh, it's, we're going to have some testimonies for many of you, or it's not going to be a big presentation. We've done that. If you haven't seen the presentation, we want to give that to you, but it'll be right here, February 9th, 4.30, that's Sunday evening, and so we're, I'm, I'm hoping that you can make it. I really am. And uh, we'll see. We'll see what the Lord's going to do. And, uh, and then secondly, next Sunday, this coming Sunday, uh, we are, have a very special guest. He's a very close friend of mine. Uh, it's Steve Robinson, who was the, for many, many years, from, started when they were just a few stores, uh, the chief marketing officer for Chick-fil-A, you know, eat more chicken and all that kind of stuff. And uh, he's going to be here. And the Sunday, the service is going to be, and I'm going to just get interview him here on stage. And I'm gonna t- we're going to talk through what's it like to try to live in the business world and then at the same time try to think kingdom and establish kingdom principles and ideologies and, and different things and, and inculcate that into and then the balance and the mix between the secular and the sacred and how that, and it's really challenging, but we're going to talk through that. I think it's going to be fascinating. And maybe you have some business savvy friends who might just want to come and sit in and, and see how this has exploded, this whole Chick-fil-A phenomenon, which has become really the most successful fast food chain ever, not in terms of just total stores, but in terms of uh, profit per store and all that. It's just an amazing story, and he's an amazing, amazing guy who passionately, passionately loves Jesus, and I think it's going to be fascinating. So everybody with me? That's going to be next Sunday. So you ready? Let's pray, and then we're going to get right into it. Why? Because we are headed out of the wilderness after this week, I promise you. I told, I said, guys, even if we get halfway through and we're just, we're dumping it and we're swimming across the Jordan, so, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for uh, the privilege, the absolute privilege to gather without fear of reprisal, without fear of uh, somebody breaking in here and, and uh, stopping the process. Lord, we, we do, and we take that for granted sometimes. And Lord, there are many places in the world where there is the persecuted church, uh, and there has been for 2,000 years. We just happen to live in this little sliver of time in which we have the freedom to gather, and Lord... Let us take advantage of that this morning, openly talking about you and what you taught some 2,000 years ago, and then this morning all the way back to possibly King Solomon 3,000 years ago and, and his insights into, into reality and into our lives. Lord, would you be with us? Would you unpack the scriptures for us in a way that would be understandable for each because we're all in a different place on our journey? Some may not, not even have started their journey in some ways. And yet we'll might even realize this morning that you've been there all along. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here's what I'd like for you to do. I'm going to do a little quick summation, and then we're going to head, if you have your Bibles, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. There was no way we were going to get out of this talk about idolatry without touching on the book of Ecclesiastes. So far, for those of you who may be new, we have 
headed out of Egypt. We've crossed the, we've crossed the uh, Red Sea there. That was a, our baptism, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. And then we've made it out into the wilderness. And then our ultimate destination is the promised land. But we found that the promised land was not actually heaven. No, the promised land was a place of battle and war. And so the preparation that happens for that battle to take place happens in the wilderness. For Israel, it was a physical battle against physical people. For us, it's clearly not. It was a template for us. Uh, my contention the last few weeks has been from the very moment you decide to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian if you like, although that's kind of a loaded term these days, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, there should always be the intent that one day I will make it through the wilderness, I will cross the Jordan, and I will make my way into the promised land, which is actually a place of inheritance, yes, but of battle and war. And that's where, again, as we've looked at the last number of weeks, Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And then he arms us up as if we have breastplates of righteousness and feet shod with the preparation of the gospel and shields of faith and swords and helmets and all that kind of metaphorical language to help us understand that Many don't ever really enter the fray. It's more of a personal thing for them. Religion is very personal, and it is. But for them, it's not ever, uh, well, evangelistic, where we think about others, where we think of that, about actually then becoming overflow. And yet Jesus in John 7 says, you're going to drink these living waters, and then rivers of living water are going to flow out of you. And what happens once we cross the Jordan is that not only are we fully wet, but we began to see people get wet around us. Does that make sense? So what happens in the wilderness? We've been talking about it. One of the things that ha should happen in the wilderness is that there's a substantive transformation that occurs in our soul. I say substantive because the process never fully ends. But it's substantive enough to where some of these idols are uprooted out of our souls. How could we be enslaved to idolatry ourselves and then ostensibly cross the Jordan and see other people come out of slavery. If we're still in slavery, how do we ever see somebody else come out of slavery? So it starts in our own hearts. The question is, how many people, let's just take the church in the West, how many people would actually identify themselves as being people who've crossed the Jordan and are, are intimately involved in the advancement of the kingdom? How, do you even construct your life around the advancement of the kingdom? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added. Do you see yourself as a kingdom advancer? And that's the question. If you don't, there may be a place where idolatry just kind of lingers in your heart and there's no real hard push to remove it. So we're going to look quickly at Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and we're going to put a definitive nail in the coffin this morning in terms of pleasure-seeking and all these other random things that we engage in, not to suggest that God doesn't bless us and there are moments of actual beauty where money's involved and friendships and beautiful dinner and all those kinds of things. This is not monasticism. This is not asceticism where we're just all about, you know, living in dust and squalor. That's not what this is about. It's about is it a primary identity marker in your life, your money, your pleasure-seeking, your whatever. Is that primarily identify you or not 
And what Solomon does, and most think, believe this is Solomon who's writing this, not all scholars agree. Because why? Because not all scholars agree on anything virtually. So, but I, I believe he says he's a king of Israel at some point. It could have been somebody else, but it's clearly the teacher. And the author is writing and saying the teacher is saying these things to you. And then we pick it up in chapter 2. What does it do? Well, it's trying to really dismantle our uninvestigated assumptions that we make about fulfillment in life. That's what Ecclesiastes is all about. It's trying to un- uncover all of these uninvestigated assumptions we make. Why? Just by being part of the culture. We just naturally gravitate towards these things. And then Solomon has an indictment. Why? Because he's tried them all out himself. Listen to what he says. I said to myself, verse 1, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Right? I'm just going to go for it. I am just going to focus my life on nothing other than pleasing myself. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. Now, that Hebrew word there, and this is important, that Hebrew word there is significant. It's very significant and actually speaks to, speaks to smoke or like a vapor. It's futility. Uh, futility just doesn't capture it in the English. That Hebrew word there is, is a picture of just something that it looks dense and it, I could grab it and uh, it's not there. It's just smoke and mirrors. It's, it's, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's hevel in the Hebrew. Everything is hevel. Said it w- even this pleasure seeking was hevel. It was futility. It was like smoke as a vapor. I said of laughter, it's just madness. I'm just going to get together. Oh, we're never going to talk about anything, but just have fun. We're going to have fun. We're just, all we're going to do is laugh and laugh and laugh. It's going to be great. And, and at the end of the day, this is madness. It's nuts. We're laughing. What are we laughing about? Nothing. Usually maybe at the expense of other people or something. I'm going to go to the comedy show every night. I'm going to watch the comedy channel every night. All I'm going to do is chase pleasure and laughter. And he goes, it's, it's, it was madness. What does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine. While my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what was good. There is for the sons of men to do under heaven for the, just the few transient little years of their lives. I enlarged my works. In other words, now I became a workaholic. I, I'm going to really go after it. I'm going to really establish something significant. So I built homes for myself, and I planted vineyards for myself, and I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Now stop for a second. Uh, you know, when I read that, I'm thinking, what is he doing? Well, if you go to all the way to the end of the story, Revelation 22, you get a picture of these fruit trees bearing fruit on the various season and these leaves and everything. You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to create heaven in a place where he can't keep it, where it won't last, and where any little mysterious thing can pop up like health or a financial crisis or anything, and then there it is, and, I, and then it's vapor. It's gone. What happens with it? He's trying to create heaven on earth. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. He was getting busy. He was going to create an environment for himself that would silence the soul cries that he was having. 
I bought male and female slaves and I had home-born slaves. I know that's offensive. This is not the kind of, again, chattel slavery that we have today, but it was still subservience. People very often would get into debt, sometimes conquered peoples, all those. It wasn't ethnically driven, but still it was slavery. And it's, he said, I had basically all kinds of help. I enlisted all kinds of people to go to work for me. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem, and I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Yes, that means exactly what it says. He went for it. Sexually speaking, he was going to pursue every beautiful young woman he could find. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I didn't refuse. I didn't withhold my heart from any pleasure because he had the capacity to do that. Now, many of us don't have the capacity to do that, but he, was, he enjoyed a kind of wealth that was beyond estimate. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus, I considered all my activities which my hands had done and all the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Did he say it wasn't fun? Did he say it wasn't exciting? Did it say it wasn't beautiful? Did he say he didn't prefer to wake up into a glorious garden instead of out on the streets somewhere? No, that's not what he said at all. He just said, in the end, in terms of fulfilling this existential crisis that I am having in my gut about the impermanence of who I know I am, everything under the sun, just a secular view of the earth, it's all futility. It's all hevel. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's, it's just gone. You, you almost get there, and then it's gone. And then, or you work all these long years in your life, and you amass some money, and now you're too old really to enjoy it. And that's what he's going to go into next, is that everything I go, even wisdom I, I pursue, and it's all, it's all hevel. So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? In other words, there's a cyclicality to the earth. I see it. The sun is rising. The sun is setting. Uh, those mountains have been there for millennia here, and they've seen all kinds of kings like me or all kinds of leaders or all kinds of men or women who have risen to great heights and then they're gone. The mountains are still there, but they'll see generation after generation after generation. I see it here. And I, I, again, I've told you this before, but I have a breakfast place that I used to frequent a lot and all these pictures all over. And there were the glory days of Palm Springs and the Rat Pack and all that kind of thing. And I look at each one of them and I take my daughters in there and I go, look at all that, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. and this and that. And that's Frank Sinatra. And they're like, who? Of no concept. It's on Frank Sinatra Drive. It means about as much to them as Bob Smith Drive. It means nothing to them. Liberace, I have no idea who Liberace was. I have no idea who, even presidents and everything. Else. And yet these mountains that we're surrounded by here in the Coachella Valley have seen generation after generation after generation come through and, tr and, and pound our chests and build our homes and enjoy our stuff. And then guess what? And then they see somebody else come through, and they rise, and then they fall, and they rise, and they fall. And in the end, time overtakes 
everybody, and that's what he's realizing. You're going to base your life on this? Really? How smart you are? How much you have? How much party spirit you can adopt for your life? How many male or female relationships you can have? Are you really going to base your life on that? It's all, it's all hevel. It's all hevel. Verse 15 said, Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it's also going to befall me. I don't care how smart I get or how wise I am. The most foolish guy on the street, the proverbial fool who understands nothing, the same fate befalls both of us. Why then have I become extremely wise? And I said to myself, this too, well, it's vanity. And there's no lasting remembrance of the wise is with the fool inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. It will be. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. And so I hated life. Hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is hevel and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. I build and amass this fortune, and then I'm going to leave it to somebody. Who I, Maybe I leave it to my kids or somebody, or maybe just the government takes it or whatever. It'll go to somebody else, and maybe they will be the proverbial fool, and everything I've worked for will be meaningless. It's all hevel. You can... You can feel the pain and the, the struggle that he has as he's writing these very words. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom and knowledge and skill and then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them, this is vanity and it's a great evil, the passing on of great wealth and inheritance to fools is an evil. He hated it. For what does a man get in all his labor and all his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his tasks are painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. It's all vanity. And then finally, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This I have seen is also from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give it to the one who is good in God's sight. So too is vanity and striving after win. Now, a couple things he does here. He does say, look, there is the gift of God, right? Again, this is not asceticism. There, there is a beautiful thing that God allows for his children to have a beautiful meal with friends and sit there and maybe even lifting up Jesus or talking about or planning ways in which uh, you can make Jesus more famous or grow his kingdom. And, and boy, those are invigorating, enlightening. Or maybe you get up in the morning and you're in a beautiful place and you look out on the mountains for me or maybe it's the ocean for you or even a desert scape it's some, and right at sunup or maybe it's sundown and you look out and, and you're just thinking of the creator. These are beautiful blessings that happen in our lives. They're not to be looked down on and that's not in and of itself vanity at all. There are beautiful things to enjoy that God gives us to enjoy. But if they are your ultimate identity, if they are 
if they have grabbed hold of your heart in the pursuit of any of these pleasures or sex or any of the things that we've been talking about over the last few weeks, if they are your driver, you will come to the end of it and you will too say, Hevel, Hevel, smoke and mirrors. You know, if, if he'd stumped in two, and he goes on, but the, conclu- the conclusion of this, I'm just going to open my Bible, and I'm just going to read the last thing. There, there's a beauty to the end of Ecclesiastes, which I'm very grateful for. And if you go then to chapter 12, last four verses. He said, the words of wise men are like goads. It's like a prod. It's something that you poke an animal in the back and it hurts a little bit but it gets them moving in the right direction it's a goad and the master of these collections are like well-driven nails they are given by one shepherd this is jesus is the ultimate shepherd jesus is saying don't base your life on this stuff i'm going to give you pictures of this i'm going to give you so I'm, I'm not anti-pleasure i'm not even anti-money i'm not anti any of this it's all a blessing for me But live and direct your life towards me in the kingdom. And along the way, you're going to have pain and suffering, and you'll suffer just like the fool. You will. I don't care how wise you get. You'll you'll get some kind of dementia, or you'll have some kind of cancer, or somebody's going to die around you. That's all part of living under the sun. But just Embrace the mystery of not understanding everything with those moments, realizing that on this side of eternity, well, it is heaven. However, verse 12, beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. It's not just wisdom, pursue, 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 read every philosopher. At the end of the day, the conclusion, when all has been heard is two things fear God and keep his commandments now we're not under the law anymore we are under the commandments of the spirit in a moment by moment if you're a believer in Jesus you have the Holy Spirit your internal GPS and just listen to his voice and do exactly what he tells you to do and when you do when you do because this applies to every person for God will bring and this is now this sounds bad but this is good this is good for a follower of Jesus why the very last God will bring every act to judgment everything which is hidden whether it is good or evil now that's kind of terrifying you say well why is that a good conclusion is because God is gonna set everything right one day all this hevel will be set right And there will be no more vapor or smoke. We won't look through a glass dimly. The Bible says we'll see him face to face. We'll become like him because we'll see him exactly as he is. There will be no more tears. That doesn't happen in this life. There will be tears for the wise. There will be tears for the fool. There will be tears for the wealthy. There will be tears for the poor. You're trying to seek it and find it and create heaven on earth. You're in for a long slog through this life. Embrace the mystery. Embrace that you can't understand everything that God is doing in your life, but you're trusting him because one day he's going to make everything right, and you're going to see him, and you're going to say, oh, I've been waiting for this day. Do you look forward to that day? You can. Even if you don't look forward to that day, you can start look forward to that day today because you can know based upon Jesus' death on the cross that you're made right 
with your father. And you want everything to come under judgment. Why? Because without judgment and without wrath and without the separating of what is good and evil, then there will be no heaven. It'll just be earth 2.0. And none of us want that. There's a good finish here. The conclusion of all his searching, all of his existential questions being answered, all of his experimentation with pleasure and sex and money and everything else, do this. Fear God. In other words, reverence him. Listen to the Holy Spirit now that we're under the new covenant and recognizing that a day is coming when God's going to set it all right. That's what we celebrate here at Church at the Red Door. Every single week, every day, we're a community that's celebrating that that day will one day come. Does that not fire you up? It's exciting. But we can't get stuck in the wilderness. So two things. How to spot any lingering idolatry and then what to do about it. That's what we're going to look at next. How do we spot it? I'm, again, beholden a little bit to Tim Keller and his great book, Counterfeit Gods. How do you spot idolatry? Number one. Look at your own imagination. You hear me say all the time, what gets you up in the morning? Explore your imagination. If you have a moment to dream, to daydream, to think out, what are you thinking about? What does your mind dwell on? Archbishop William Temple simply said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. When you have those moments that you're not being engaged or barraged with thoughts and people and phone calls and email, when you just have that moment just to relax and be still, what are you dreaming about? Sometimes those dreams, although we can't, it's not always the kingdom, but if they consistently come back to one thing, it's like this, this tape that just plays relentlessly in your mind, and it's always in your mind, always in your mind, always in your mind, it might be giving you an indication that your imagination, what you're dreaming of, what you're imaging in your mind, what you're imaging and projecting out could be an indication that idolatry persists that would disallow you to do what? To hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Right? If you go back to Revelation 3, Jesus always asking, do you have, for those who have ears to hear, in other words, we have to be unblocked. We have to be able to both see and hear. And idols tend to cloud it or block it. And even if there's something very gloriously invigorating that Jesus is trying to share with you that will take you into a whole new dimension of life and, and productivity, you can't hear it. Why? Well, you just, you're not thinking about it. You're not imagining it all the time. Number two. How do you, and like it or not, how do you spend your money? Uh, Matthew's very six, Matthew 6, 21. Wherever your money goes, your heart will follow. Now, sometimes you say, well, whatever, how whatever moves your heart, spend your money on it. And I would say that's inversely true in the scripture. It's an upside down kingdom. Wherever you want your heart to be, strategically put your money there and your heart will chase right after it. If you wait just to be, you know, Whatever my heart wants, I'm just going to spend my money on it. There may be some idolatry. If you find yourself spending your money on things that you look back and go, what a waste, or wow, it just didn't quite satisfy or whatever, it could be an indication of idolatry. Where does your money go? Where does your imagination go? Where does your money go? And then next, and this is important, catch this, 
Look at your most uncontrollable emotions. Look at your most uncontrollable emotions. When you pull, again, quoting Keller, when you pull your emotions up by the roots, as it were, you will often find your idols clinging to those roots. Let me give you an example. I'm embarrassed to say this, and I'm just a bad person, a bad dad, and a bad husband, and everything else, but this happened a long, long time ago. So yesterday afternoon, uh, <laughs> my, my daughter was out, was out front, and we have this little, we, 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 had a, we had horrible landscaping for a long time. And so two of our friends, Chris Herman and Monica Solis, came over and was like, this is horrible. I mean, we have to do something about this. So we put a little budget together, and then Chris got us a, a nice uh, budget deal on some artificial grass, and we put some little artificial grass in there. And then we had to repair some stuff that was over here around this, and there was a little decking over here, and it was. It was bad. It was just overgrown and nasty. And now all of a sudden, and, and Laura's like, I don't know if this is I said, just let, these are experts. They have such an eye for this. And, and, they, and all of a sudden we went out and was like, wow, this is amazing. This looks great. And then, as you know, we have a kennel at my house, and so all these, all these dogs and cats and everything else, and I'm like, look, we only have really one. These, these dogs, they can put hair on the house. They can, they can do their business in the back part over here, but this is like my little private sanctuary, so when people walk in, it looks nice, right? It looks nice. And plus, one day, you know, we can't wait. Uh, eventually, we're going to downsize. We're going to downsize. We're going to go much smaller house, but we've needed this space for, you know, the girls are growing up and Laura's parents live with us and we have a lot of people and animals and everything else. We need the space. But I'm envisioning resale value, resale value, resale value, and that goes through my mind, resale value. So yesterday, I'm like, where are the dogs? Because the dogs stay in the kitchen, which I know. Anyway, so the dogs are in the kitchen. I'm like, where are the dogs? And, and, And then Savannah brought her dog over. So we've got like three dogs and they're all big dogs. I'm like, oh, they're out front. Now, she didn't say, in your sanctuary. Because <laughs> Tess is out there. Watch them. It's artificial grass. So I went out there, and to my horror, I looked out, and uh, the Malamute, which just looks like a, a big Siberian husky, is in the pool. All right? And then, and then the other new dog that was also a save that went to Savannah's house, she was there. And she was trying to bite her, and she was in the pool, and they were running back and forth. They would go through my beautiful artificial grass and into dirt and make a sing, and then roll and dive and play, and then run back through, and then around the pool, and then and there was mud everywhere, all over my new, you know, my. My new deck, my, my the grass, everything. And Tessa's over there. She's drawing in the corner, and nobody could see. And it was not my proudest moment. What are these dogs? Get these dogs out of here. And my emotions just went crazy. I mean, it really did. I said, what are they doing? Stop. And then Laura had to come out. And, okay, we need to get the dogs. Who's going to clean this up? And I, I mean, your pastor, Mr. Jesus, Mr. You know, Mr. Love Everybody and Serve Everybody. Because, you know, that's our pastor because he's such a good guy. Uh, and here I was going crazy. And then I went back to my room and I was back in my room and I thought, well, that was a little bit of an overreaction. That was the first thing that came into my mind. Was just, well, that was a little bit of an overreaction. And yet I, then I started justifying, well, I'm not going to apologize because they should have known, you know, blah, 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 you know, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, by the way, this is my apology, Laura. It's Tess. This is my, 
my public confession. This is my apology to you. And uh, I was like, where did that come from? Well, I pulled up these emotions, and I pulled them up by the root. And dangling there was resale value, resale value, which goes right to the point of money. And how are we going to retire? And I, we don't sell this house if it looks as bad as it did when we bought it. And blah, blah, blah. Something was there. It was distrust. It's idolatry. And my emotions, my emotions proved dangling, clinging to these roots, resale value. It's idolatry. Now, should, is it okay to keep your dogs out of your front little place? Yeah, it's okay and everything else. But to react like that, overreaction. Probably indicating something. And then finally, if, if you have a counterfeit God, it'll begin to make demands on you that exceed boundaries. Workaholism, every other thing. Idols are really challenging. You know they're there when you find yourself exceeding natural boundaries. We're called to raise our kids. If we just throw our kids out to be raised by whoever because we're so materialistic and so focused on our career, so focused on where that balance I'm not saying what the balance is. I'm saying we just have to be caught. And we realize that we've, we've worked our whole, you know, we work 90-hour weeks and this and that, and we, there's no balance there. We've exceeded proper boundaries, and in doing so, well, there's probably an idol there. And I could go into every... It could be sexually related, pleasure. You just cannot get through a weekend without having to do something, have something on the agenda, some party, some something. There always have to be, you know, even before you finish the party you're in, you're thinking about organizing the next party that you're going to go to. Probably exceeds proper boundaries. There may be an idol clinging on in your heart. And if we're going to help people move out of slavery, then we too must have been freed in a substantive way, never perfectly, never wholly or completely. That's Jesus. He was without idol. There was no competition in his heart for his love of the Father and the plans that the Father had. There is competition in our hearts for the love of the Father and for the plans he has for us. So we have to eradicate them. So what do we do? And that's how we'll finish this morning and we'll somehow get out of the wilderness what do we do? Well, there's just a few things that came to my mind, and many of these things we've talked about, but we have to choose to set our minds. In other words, let's renegotiate the things we're spending time imagining. Uh, Colossians 3, verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. It's just that simple. Set your mind. If you're going to imagine things, imagine above. Now, what does that mean? Clouds and Charmin and harps and it's too vague. It's too opaque. No, when it says set your mind on the things above, it's talking about the kingdom of Jesus. It's already invaded the earth. It's his rule, his reign, and the expansion of his kingdom, which goes through absorption, not power and politics and warfare in terms of the physical warfare. No, it comes in serving and loving and washing feet. Uh, and that's the kind of the way it advances. And how are we going to reach out to people who hate us and have marginalized us and still love them and 
Look for opportunities to talk about Jesus. Why? Because we're so enraptured by that, we set our minds on that. And that's why it's so important that you constantly gather together. That's why it's not, Sunday's important. Uh, you know, Bible studies during the week, women's Bible studies, this, that, gathering with other believers. As much as you can is great because the topic of conversation, if we do it right, revolves around setting our minds on things above, not things on the earth. If you're just, if you're, you know, if you're just one hour, you're thinking about above, and then the rest of the hours of the week, you're just riveted on the things below, it's going to be hard for you to restore, sanctify, cleanse your imagination into the right things. So being around community really helps, and that's powerful. So set your mind on the things above. Uh, number two, filter everything through his word. I know we talk about that a lot, but everything goes through the matrix of the word. Lord, your word, your word, your word, your word. That's why I am so committed to the study of the Bible. I mean, I love fellowship and events and things like that are wonderful, but the only way I see real progress uh, in people's lives, including my own, is through the matrix of the word. John 6, 63, listen to what Jesus says. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. I know you're struggling with depression or futility or hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. Uh, go through the matrix of the word. It'll lift your spirits. My words, Jesus said, are spirit and they're life. And they'll get you riveted on the things above and it'll take your mind off of our pursuit of worldly things. It just does. And it's helpful. It's radically helpful. And lastly, or not lastly, but next, consider yourself as dead to sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, this means that you begin to envision your life as one partnered with Jesus, yoked, if you will. Getting the mental picture makes gross sin unimaginable. Listen to the words, Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and purity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Just consider it. Start to think of yourself. Picture yourself yoked with Jesus. I mean, get the mental, put that as an imagine in your imagination. Imagine a yoke. I mean, I'm right there with Jesus, not God way out there somewhere. And maybe one day, you know, I'll get to see him or maybe shake his hand like, a, like, like the Pope, you know, or something. Like, I just shake his hand or just touch his cup. And then, then I'll regress back into the crowds. No, imagine Jesus, Jesus' words, being yoked with Jesus, being right here that close. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, his spirit is with us. We can have conversation and dialogue and not just a one-time kind of, oh, there he is way out there. No, daily, right there. And when you start to consider yourself as being yoked, guess what happens? Can you imagine being yoked with Jesus and then being addicted to pornography or being half sloshed at some party into your fourth martini just because you're trying to self-medicate because you're kind of bored and, you, you know, whatever. Can you imagine? No. Consider yourself as dead to all this stuff. Why? Picture yourself as being yoked with Jesus, and it just becomes unthinkable. I haven't always been able to do that. 
Still a struggle every day. But the more I consider myself dead to all that junk and idolatry, the more I feel arise, right? And this leads us into the last. There are many places we could go. These are just things that came to my mind as I was preparing. Get involved in your gifting. Absorb yourself. Paul tells this to Timothy. Now listen to what he says. He says, Timothy, don't neglect the spiritual gift within you. Don't do it, Timothy. It was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. That's all a bunch of fancy religious stuff. Is We had a couple of guys. We got around you. We saw the calling on your life. We laid our hands on you. We imparted a gift. And it was, you know, you need to teach and lead. And Paul was having Timothy lead. And and he was, you know, over, oversaw some churches and had some responsibility. He says, now what I want you to do is I want you to absorb it. And then verse 15 says, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them that your progress may be evident to everybody. If your gift is generosity, give like crazy. Give beyond understanding. If your gift is teaching, spend hours in the Word. Get up. Be absorbed in it. Let it soak your imagination. Let it completely uh, be just completely overtaken by your passion to learn the Word so that you can convey it to people in need. If you're, if you're, a, if you're a servant and, and the Lord has given you that capacity, get there early, stay there late, serve Jesus as if he, well, as if you're serving Jesus. Amen. And he's right there. Not because somebody asks you and you've got to, you know, this and that. No, do it as unto Christ. Do it as unto the, do all things to the glory of God. As we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as well, 31. Do all to the glory of God. Absorb yourself in your calling. So these giftings, well, I don't know what my gifting is. Again, we've got this class starting in February uh, with Pastor Dave Seifert, who's an amazing, I mean, pastored these huge churches and, and had radio, radio, television stuff all the way through Central California. He's going to be right upstairs helping you walk through and try to assess your giftings in a very practical and real way, something we want to provide you with. And then once you start to sense that this is your calling, be absorbed in it, and it will be unthinkable the more you get absorbed in your calling. It's unthinkable Idolatry begins to wane. It, it clings, but then it starts to go away. And little by little, you find yourself pulled out of slavery and into life. Those are just some things that I think are thoroughly biblical, thoroughly appropriate, thoroughly practical. Again, one more time, set your mind on things above. It takes community. Do it through the word. Consider yourselves. I'm yoked with Christ. I'm just, I'm dead to that stuff. It's not, it doesn't have part of me anymore. It's, yes, it's my flesh is always, oh, I, want, I want more of that. Your flesh is never going to change. It's sarks. It's always going to crave, crave, crave. But we kill our flesh. We say, you know, you will not have preeminence here. My spirit is going to lead here. The spirit is willing, the Bible says, but the flesh is so weak, your flesh will never get strong. It's always going to pull you in the direction of idolatry. But your spirit's going to lead. Those who are led by the spirit, now these are the sons of God. Let your spirit lead. These are ways in which you are spiritually going to the gym. You're doing push-ups. You're running on the treadmill. Absorb yourself. Consider yourself. And, find, and then really just get deeply involved in whatever gifting God has given you.
you will, well, you'll be able to cross the Jordan and have an impact, right? Does that make sense? I, th- I think, I think we've just left the wilderness. <laughs> yeah, isn't that great? So next week will be a great segue into the other side of the Jordan. It'll be a practical story about how a guy named Truett Cathy, all those years ago, decided to push forward and say, well, I, I can take, I can take my, my convictions and move it right into the business world. I don't have to be a pastor. I don't have to just be, you know, something. And so I, I go back to my, my bad world stuff. It's not a bad world. Everywhere you go, you take Jesus with you. Right? So that'll be a great thing of, of someone who says, okay, I'm crossing the Jordan. I think the story of truth is someone who says, I'm crossing the Jordan. I'm going in. And I, and I, I care about the kingdom. And I, and I care about my convictions. And I care about my faith. And something extraordinary was built out of that. Does that make sense? So we're going to close with this song. And it's meaningful. We, have, we played this song early on in the formation of this church. I am no longer a slave. Right? So the question this morning is, are you still enslaved or are you becoming free? I, I, I'm still becoming, right? But it happened enough to where I was able to cross. I was ready. Got, it was a time. I was ready to cross. So are you still a slave? Well, I'm no longer a slave. I'm no longer a slave. In fact, Jesus says, I no longer call you a slave. I call you my friend. Friend. Friend of God. Crazy. And the Bible also says Jesus was a what? Friend of sinners. Oh, that, that can include me. A friend of sinners. That was, his, that was their accusation against him. I think it's a glorious title, friend of sinners. So you are no longer alive. Now I don't have Pastor Paul come up, closes in prayer, and kind of finish out, give you a picture. All right? It's been good. I, I told Laura the other morning. I said, I love what I do. It is such a privilege to bring the word, to be, to be engaged with you as a community. I mean, some of you I know better than others. I want to get to know all of you. I want to know your stories. It is such a privilege. I get up in the morning. I can't wait to get up. I told the guys this week, I feel like that Jerry Maguire movie, that, that kind of older man. I can't wait to get up in the morning, you know. I, just, I can't wait. It's such a privilege to be absorbed in a calling that has a benefit to you. You can have that same sense. And the king, Jesus wants you to have that same sense. But we're going to have to walk away from those things that would enslave us. You are no longer a slave.